Welcome to In-House Legal with attorney Paul Boynton. It's everything in-house, legally speaking. Technology, business practices, trends, and controversies important to corporate counsel. Welcome to the Legal Talk Network. We're glad you could listen today to In-House Legal. I'm attorney Paul Boynton. And I've covered the in-house legal community for over six years as a publisher and editor of in-house publications, and now have my own media consultancy. This portion of today's show is sponsored by Huron Consulting Group. The topic of discussion in the first half of today's show is leading-edge practice management tools for in-house law departments. We're going to focus on three dynamic strategies that can help you control the costs of paying your outside law firms and obtain valuable legal services. This challenge, as you know, is at the nub of the relations with your outside counsel. With me today to help dissect the tactics you need to employ to get the most out of your legal spend is Reese Morrison, a longtime law department consultant who has guided hundreds of law departments in his distinguished career. Reese is very much at the forefront of advising on leading-edge law department strategy. He writes an informative blog entitled Law Department Management, which can be found at www.lawdepartmentmanagementblog.com. Welcome, Rees, and thank you for joining us today. Thank you very much, Paul. Now, one leading-edge tactic being employed by savvy in-house legal departments is taking, taking on law firm lawyers for temporary assignments as if those lawyers are on loan. The law firm lawyers often will work at a reduced rate, and a fancy term for this is secondment. Uh, Rees, why do in-house legal departments like this arrangement? They like it for a number of reasons, reasons Paul. Uh, one is it is a lower-cost way to fill a temporary gap, such as a maternity. Two, it's sometimes a try the person out, see if you like them, and you might even hire them later. And third, you get to pick and choose just who you want, generally speaking. You bring in some new ideas. So secondments work for many reasons. And what's in it for law firms? Why do they like the arrangement? Oh, well, on the law firm side, Paul, um, they like attaching themselves closer to a corporate client. Having one of their people work on the inside does that. They also like it because, look, many associates leave. There's a high attrition rate. Might as well have them happy somewhere. In today's world, with recession, it keeps somebody busy, at least covering their costs. Is there any uh, traps for the unwary in this type of arrangement that that our listeners should be aware of? Well, one thing is if the law firm insists on a a, a finder's fee, if you eventually hire the person, I think the law firm shouldn't. You should be aware of that when you sign up the the agreement. The second point, Paul, if I was adding, is you need to be pretty clear about the person's role because they may be a third-year associate just stepping into the middle of the law department, not quite sure what they should be doing and they're responsible for. A second uh, topic is offshore legal work, which has been around for a while, but with the extensive array of vendors now offering this service, in-house legal departments have a lot of options to consider. A recent survey on Legal OnRamp, a social network for corporate lawyers, shows that legal offshoring will continue to increase over the next three years at least. Now, this survey was created by yourself and the American lawyer. Uh, Reese, tell us a little bit about this survey and its findings. Well, there are three players in it, basically. Uh, legal OnRamp is the uh, brainchild of Paul Lippi, a very energetic and progressive guy. It has 2,500-some law department members on legal on-ramp. Part two was Eric Press, who's the editor-in-chief of American Lawyer. He called and said, Reese, why don't we try to tap into the legal on-ramp people, ask some interesting questions. One of them was about um, 
offshoring also, Paul. What we looked at, just to take it a step further, is we looked at the 84 respondents from fairly large companies, companies larger than a billion dollars in revenue. And it did show some projections about increased use of offshoring over the next three years or so. What are some of the important considerations when uh, pursuing this tactic, such as the pricing, the benefits, the potential downsides, etc.? Sure. Most law departments, when they think about offshoring possibilities, look to see what kind of commodity legal work they're doing. Um, it may be confidentiality agreements. It may be a litigation support, document review is a very common one. Possibly it's various kinds of legal research or administrating uh, contracts and doing some IP work like uh, um, patent searches around the world. So they're looking for work that's kind of at the paralegal level, Paul. It's work that they can describe in, a, in either a flow chart or guidelines. Then they need to look for some of the service providers. And right now it is a bubbling cauldron. There, there must be a hundred legal process offshoring companies in India alone. And it's not just India, it's also Israel and South Africa and the Philippines. So how's an in-house lawyer to make sense of this bubbling cauldron? <laughs> Keep stirring. Um, usually you do it through an RFP process. There's some well-known vendors in this area like Pangea 3 or United Lex or uh, Mindcrest, Integrion, and you could easily send an RFP where you describe the work you have give some sense of maybe how many person hours it might take, uh, and, and ask for information from them and ask for a proposal. Ask for them on a fixed fee. What would we have to pay you to do this work over a period of time? And is it your advice that what's really driving this is for the commodity-type legal work that it's really pricing? Well, it is, Paul. In the first instance, uh, because the, the price differentials are along the lines of the following, a, a newly graduated lawyer in India, they don't have a bar examination, but they've studied law and they're, they're an Indian lawyer, could be running at something like $25 an hour. Well, you just about, you, you can't get temps in America for almost twice that, let alone your own people who are probably running in-house well north of 150 an hour. So there's a big cost differential if the quality of the work is, is what you want. And that is a big plus. But there are a couple more, Paul. One is the, the good LPOs, that's the term for them, legal process offshores. The good LPOs will also try to rethink your process and maybe improve it either possibly with some technology, some software, or with sort of reengineering your process. So it's not just cost. Should in-house counsel demand as a condition of continued work that their outside law firms also use these LPOs in appropriate circumstances? Does that make sense? Well, well that's a great question. That, that would be a pretty aggressive posture. I've written on my blog about one law firm that gives its clients the choice. We can do your work onshore, so to speak, or we could do it offshore, and here's a price differential. And I thought that was very good, very progressive from the law firm side. Now, whether a general counsel should say, law firm, on this litigation for this document review, tell me which LPO you use and what are your terms. I haven't heard of that. I think it's a good idea. I think in this era or this year of aggressive cost-cutting, we'll probably see something like that. What you have to remember is it's a new industry. 
legal process offshoring only began really about five years ago. So people are feeling their way. They're learning what works and doesn't work. And there's been some political resistance to, quote, shipping U.S. jobs offshore, unquote. I think that will give way in the face of the economics and other benefits. Very good. Reese, another leading-edge law management tool you're seeing is fixed-price competitive bids. Uh, tell us a, a little bit about those and, and how, the, how it works. Well, I'll be blunt. If you can foresee a half a million dollars worth of work over the next 18 months going to two or three law firms in a certain area, why not bundle it together, ask them to propose how they would handle it and for what set fee? No, they don't know what's coming in the next 18 months, but if you have some historical information from your matter management system, you can project it, and you can protect on both sides. But basically, they'll come back and say, I'll handle it for $450,000, whatever comes up in that bundle. That's the basic idea of it, Paul. Is this an RFP process or more like a true auction? It doesn't really work very well. Uh, General Electric tried uh, online auctions. I think Pfizer did in their first round, but it's, it's more sophisticated than buying pencils. So you want RFPs, but you can shape the RFPs so that they come back in a format that you can analyze. And that's, that's what I would recommend you do. Now, there are various type of so-called bidding systems. Uh, which system do you think works best for law departments? I, I think there are, let me give you three answers to it. One, I think you should pick six law firms that you know could do the work. Send out the RFP, get back the proposals, knock out two or three of them. Go back to the remaining three and say, these were the ranges of bids. You don't, uh, obviously you don't tell which law firm bid how much, but you say, here are the ranges. You get to rethink, here, by the way, are some new facts, some new assumptions you should make that have surfaced from it. If you do that double bidding, it's a double bid Dutch auction, Dutch because it's going down instead of up. If you do a double bidding Dutch auction, it, it helps bring people together, smoke out wildly different bids, and you converge on a pretty good market price. So it's really not just a one-step process. It's two or even three. It could if you had enough people be three. And is, there, is this bidding process good for all kinds of legal work, or is it more appropriate for certain kinds of legal work? Well, I, I usually say to law departments that it's best if you, for instance, bundle all your employment discrimination work or all of your real estate uh, leasing work in the Northeast or all of something fairly similar that's sizable enough. But I've also seen a situ- one situation, at least, where a law department put all of its outside counsel work out in one bundle and chose a firm to handle it. So I believe there's flexibility in here that can meet your spending levels and your trust with law firms and, and other consideration. Well, Reese, this has been very insightful, and thank you so much for taking the time to join us today to share your thoughts and insights on these leading-edge management tools. Uh, if you would, please share with our listeners your contact information and how they can reach you. Well, and thanks, Paul, for having me. I hope it was useful. Um, my phone number is 973-568-9110, and my website is www com. Hope you visit it. And don't forget, he writes a great blog, let me tell you. It's called lawdepartmentmanagementblog.com. So again, www.lawdepartmentmanagementblog.com. We're going to take a quick break, and when we return, we will be joined by Jane Allen, president of Council on Call.
Huron Consulting Group's legal consulting practice, a leading provider of consulting and business services to corporations and law firms, helps align strategy, people, processes, and technology to meet the goals of the organization. We also help prepare and plan for all phases of discovery in a legal dispute or investigation. We establish an effective records management program that creates cost savings and enhanced productivity while minimizing risk. Check out Velocity, the first comprehensive e-discovery solution. For more information, visit us at www.huronconsultinggroup.com. Welcome back to In-House Legal. I am your host, Paul Boynton. We are now joined by Jane Allen, the president of Council on Call, a company she founded in 2000. The company's experienced attorneys work at low cost in all areas of the law for both in-house departments and law firms. A former practicing attorney, Ms. Allen has earned several Entrepreneur of the Year awards as Council on Call has grown to six offices across the country. Welcome, Jane, to the show. Thank you, Paul. Jane, you have a unique vantage point on the legal profession because your company works with both in-house departments and law firms. What's your take on all the turmoil in the economy? You know, the economy is forcing lawyers to take a laser-like focus when it comes to cost containment. Last year, many of our clients were, you know, the the end-of-the-year bonuses were dependent upon their ability to be able to cut costs. This year, unfortunately, some of our clients' jobs depend on their ability to cut their costs. And so most of our clients are in a position to have to demonstrate the value they add. Now, lawyers are expected not only to understand, but to often be able to articulate what they're getting in return for the money they're spending. Now, along those lines, what are some of the things that you're talking to legal departments about? You know, the pressure is unlike anything we've ever seen. And so... Most of our clients are being told they have to cut 10 to 20% from their bottom line. Needless to say, this is what we're talking to them about. And the first reaction seems to fall into, oh, my gosh, I've got to cut staff. I've got to lay off my attorneys. I've got to get rid of my outside counsel relationships. And what we're doing is actually coming in and walking through ways that they can achieve this objective without making wholesale changes to the way they operate. You know, there's always going to be work that should be sent to your outside counsel. And likewise, there's always going to be work that should be done by your in-house attorneys. But what we typically find is that there's a middle ground of work there that can be done by really talented attorneys at rates less than $100 an hour. So by working with our clients, they're able to understand how this can work and how they are then able to achieve their business objectives, which is to cut the 10 to 20% from their budget. Jane, how does this actually materialize? You know... One thing, as I said earlier, our clients care about cost. They have to care about cost right now. But one thing our clients also have in common is they care about quality. You know, many years ago when I was in private practice and there were a lot of lawyers, really talented attorneys who were well-educated, well-credentialed, well-trained, who were choosing to leave the practice because of the demands, whether it was they didn't want to have the pressure to go out and build business or whether they didn't like all of the non-billable requirements. They enjoyed the actual practice, but they just did not want to adapt to the demands of the traditional practice. So what, you know, and what I find is most people, including some of your listeners today, I'm sure know people that fall into this category. So how it materializes is our clients are able to utilize this resource 
to their advantage. For our in-house attorneys, it enables them to work with the quality lawyers and achieve their overall business objectives. And for our law firms, it enables them to work with the quality attorneys and have the flexibility they need in order to meet the changing needs of their clients. At the end of the day, it really provides value to everyone, our attorneys as well as our clients. So if today's in-house attorney is more business-centric, how does that eventually translate to the rest of the profession? You know, Paul, it really drives everything. Um, There are, you know, what we're finding is there's more discussions and creative options being presented even than there were two or three years ago. In the last couple of weeks, I read an article by Paul Lippi in the Amlaw Daily about the, you know, possible flaws of the traditional law firm model. I know ACK has issued a value challenge. There are law firms now, you know, there are a few that we work with that are former big firm partners that have joined together to create a different type of firm where they have a one, you know, one set hourly billing rate, which is lower, and then Rather than work with associates, they choose to work with counsel on call attorneys, and then those savings are passed on to their clients. You know, and quite candidly, we've worked with some of these lawyers for years, and we are watching them become more and more creative in how they utilize the resources a company like ours offers, whether it's corporate work all the way to litigation. And, you know, and I do think litigation is an area that, most of the listeners have probably read about and heard about in the whole e-discovery world. Um, You know, years ago, when a large case came in, the in-house lawyer simply would send it to outside counsel. Now, there are some companies that have an employee whose sole responsibility it is to monitor and reduce the e-discovery costs. Now, granted, this is an area where a company can achieve astronomical savings, and, and it's now an area where you have business people scrutinizing it, looking at the cost, the value that they expect in return for the money spent, and quite frankly, people's jobs now depend on the ability to get that done. Jane, so this is mainly about documents review? You know, well, certainly doc review or e-discovery gets a lot of press, and Often, you know, we'll meet with clients and they'll say, oh, so you do doc review. No, it's not just about doc review. The reality is that companies can rely significant savings in the e-discovery world when it is done correctly. And quite frankly, we could spend a couple of shows talking about what works and what doesn't work and the savings that can be obtained in the e-discovery world. But I do believe what the doc review or the e-discovery has done has helped open the eyes that outsource can and often does work when it's done correctly. I do believe lawyers are now put in a position to place a value on different types of work, and it's also enabled lawyers to see that there are really talented lawyers out there that choose to practice, you know, in a non-traditional way. Um, I believe the experience in the doc review or e-discovery world has opened the door for lawyers to realize that it can be done in other areas as well. So how does an in-house department take what's been learned on e-discovery to other areas or departments? You know, I think with regard to e-discovery, most of our clients have learned that there is a need for transparency. There is a need for repeatable process and quality lawyers. And we have a whole litigation support division that focuses on this as well as other things. But I do believe that that now lawyers are realizing that the things that have been done in the e-discovery world can be done in other areas. Um, A lot of your listeners may have received the recession briefing from the General Counsel Forum. I 
think it was February 15th, and the number one item on the list that general counsels are doing now is the willingness to send a significant amount of their work to alternative service providers. And for that matter, it specifically mentions counsel on call. Another item it discusses is the process mapping, which is another way of saying the GCs are closely reviewing all of their internal processes for inefficiencies and figuring out ways to correct them. At, at the end of the day, there's certainly a lot that can be learned from what's going on in e-discovery, and the reality is it's a matter of reviewing how things are being done and determining better ways to get things done, and often for less money. So outside of litigation and e-discovery, Jane, what areas do you see the greatest potential for cost savings? You know, when you say greatest potential for cost savings, that answer, quite frankly, depends on the client. Um, what we found is just like every law firm is different, every corporate legal department is different. And so what we typically do is go in with the client, learn about their department, the structure, the various responsibilities, who their clients are, how they interact with their clients, issues that arise on a regular basis. You know, for example, does a company have a real estate department? If so, what do those in-house real estate lawyers do on a daily basis? Do they have anticipated surges coming up with development of new properties over the next six months? How are they handling leases? What's being sent? These are questions that we go in and work with the client and help them understand areas where they can reach significant savings. And then that also could be done, you know, franchising, intellectual property, employment, you know, how many employees do you have, you know, any divestitures, acquisitions, how's due diligence going to be handled. Every client is different and even the clients change so rapidly, especially in this world today. But, you know, by sitting down and working together, it's we're able to find significant savings that can be reached in areas in addition to the savings capitalized in litigation. Jane, wrapping up, are there any other steps you'd recommend for our listeners? You know, the first is really basic, but it's talk to your peers. You know, there for everyone out there that's listening who's facing a challenge, there are others who are facing the same challenge or who've already gone through that challenge. You know, one thing we've seen in working with in-house lawyers is sometimes they feel isolated. And so we make it a point of introducing them to others who are similarly situated, whether it's a Fortune 50 company or whether it's an individual in a one-person legal department. And so that way they can talk about what they've done, what works, and quite often, more importantly, what doesn't work. And they can learn from each other. The other thing is use the available resources to the best value. You know what? Your outside counsel, let your outside counsel does what they do best. Let your in-house lawyers do what they do best. And then let us or a company like ours do what we do best. But the point is there's a place for all three, and it doesn't have to be a painful process to determine how they all really can work together. You know, but at the end of the day, by doing this, you can cut your bottom line by 10 to 20%. Jane, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, really just tremendous insights and really just fast-moving developments out there. Uh, to thank learn, you, Paul. You're welcome. To learn more about Council on Call, visit counciloncall.com or their blog at laudable.com, which is L-A-W-D-A-B-L-E.com. Love that name, by the way, Jane. Thank you. 
We hope you'll join us for another in-house legal show. Thanks for listening today. I'm Paul Boynton, host of In-House Legal, your online source of the news and information in-house lawyers need to stay ahead of the game. Thanks for listening to In-House Legal with attorney Paul Boynton. Hot topics for the in-house lawyer, legally speaking. We hope you'll listen to the next edition right here on the Legal Talk Network.